this is the education show unlocking opportunities in teaching and learning through collaboration proudly brought to you by zabuza.net and another edition of the education show today a subject that needs to be talked about but isn't and uh, we are in the middle of our 16 days of activism against women and child abuse and from ENS Africa we have Natasha Wahit on uh, the line with us Hello, Natasha. How are you doing today? I'm okay, David. And how are you? Okay. I think I think at this stage, you know, with us approaching the end of the year, we, we're in the middle of this the 16 days of activism and everything happening around us. I think okay is probably the best we can aim for at this stage. But yes. let's see what we can do and and how we can contribute and maybe help uh, the people out there because. We're going to get into this, I think, in a little while, but uh, the, the whole issue of gender-based violence was, was brought home in a crashing way to me this morning, um, and we'll talk about that in a little while, I think, because it suddenly makes everything very, very much more real to me as well. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about Natasha. Give me a bit of your background, Natasha, and, and you know, where did you grow up, how did you grow up, and what made you want to do what you currently do? Yes, so um, thanks for this opportunity, David. And yes, it's always important to speak out about gender-based violence. Um, but a bit about me. My name's Natasha, as you mentioned. I'm an attorney. I have always been passionate about human rights. And from a very young age, um, trying to identify some of the ills and the wrongs in the world and seeing how m my I, myself, in a small way, could... Um, shed some light and help to correct the problem or demystify problems. So I grew up in um, the Western Cape in Mitchell's Plain. We then moved um, to the southern suburbs um, a bit later on in life. And I've always been acutely aware of difficult socioeconomic conditions. And therefore, throughout my legal career to date, I've always tried to focus on vulnerable groups of people and seeing what I can do using the law as a tool. So yeah, that's just in a nutshell a bit about me. Fantastic stuff. And I mean, you, you make it sound so easy, but I mean, I know that that has taken years and years of very, very hard work and self-sacrifice. But Natasha, how did you end up with ENS Africa? Because uh, let's be honest, that's not a small little law firm. <laughs> um, it's actually, I, I think it, it was meant to happen because I was working in Joburg um, doing impact litigation, actually. And I said, you know what, I actually want to move back home and so forth. And I put it out into the universe and I cleaned up my LinkedIn profile and I got a call from the firm from ENS Africa. And three interviews later, I, I, I kind of moved to Cape Town and started working at our one of our pro bono offices, which is situated in Mitchell's Plain um, and assists predominantly Mitchell's Plain and Kailicha. And that's how I found myself um, working for ENS Africa. And five and a bit years later, I'm still with the firm and very, very, very still very passionate about what I do and how we as a firm and are able to assist vulnerable people. So yes, that's how I got um, got to work at ENS Africa. So I think sometimes we spoke with this about, about this a bit earlier. If something's meant to be, it will happen. And I think this was where I'm supposed to be at the moment, yes. 
Well, it's wonderful. If, if that is your calling, hats off to you. <laughs> but now, we, we're talking about gender-based violence, abuse of women and children. Um, it's never a pleasant subject to talk about, and it's something that we all wish wasn't happening, um, particularly in our country, but it happens around the world. What exactly is your involvement there in terms of gender-based violence and the abuse of women and children? Okay, so a core component of our pro bono CSI program is trying to assist and combat gender-based violence. So what we do is we assist, I hate saying the word victim, I like I prefer survivors, survivors of gender-based violence. So we'll assist survivors with um, consultations on a pro bono basis, assisting with um, drafting protection orders in some instances representing. And then we also do a great deal of legal education focused on what is gender-based violence, how one can combat it, how we can break the stigma around it, working also with local community organizations to strengthen our response to gender-based violence. And um, then we also tried, especially during the lockdown, we created, for example, a digital pamphlet that we sent to our database and to local organizations on the steps to um, actually apply for a protection order. So in a nutshell, helping with the legal aspect, also shedding light and putting in place preventative measures so people can actually identify what gender-based violence is and therefore we break the stigma and working closely with local organizations so that we can have a consolidated response to gender-based violence. So very involved in it and we look that we want to continue to be involved in this space because it's so very important. Now, Natasha, full disclosure here. We actually recorded um, an interview like this last week and then there were technical issues and it, it was an incredibly moving sort of interview for me. The technical issues meant that we had to reschedule and we rescheduled for today and that gender-based violence has been on my mind um, ever since then and today it, it, it came home to roost in a, in a horrific way. Um, I was on the phone to a friend of mine and uh, she has three children, and uh, she was saying that uh, she'd moved out of, of the home. Um, her husband is abusive, um, and it had been going on for 14 years. And the reason, the catalyst for her to now take action and move out is he started in on her 10-year-old daughter. I, I literally, even now, I have cold chills thinking about this because these are people, I was friends with both of them, um, and I never knew. I never, ever knew that there was anything like that. So, you know, to, to people who think that, that gender-based violence, uh, abuse of women and children don't and doesn't happen, I'm here to tell you you are seriously mistaken. And the sad, sad thing is it is way more prevalent than, than we'd like to think about. And it goes far deeper than just abuse of women and children, doesn't it, Natasha? Yes, so I think a good place to start, David, is to try and unpack what gender-based violence or GBV um, is, because we see it all around us. And part of shedding light is maybe let's just break it down and see. There are numerous definitions, so that's my caveat. But one that I like, because it's so comprehensive, is something like this. So it says that it is violence that is directed at an individual 
based on her or his biological sex or gender identity. And it includes physical, sexual, verbal, emotional, and psychological abuse. It's both threats, coercion, economic or educational deprivation. And importantly, it can occur in public or as you've witnessed today, David, in private as well. And some examples of GBV include child marriage, honor killings, trafficking, intimate partner violence, which ties in with the example that you mentioned, physical punishment, sexual, emotional abuse, or even psychological violence. So we can see that it is a wide definition and it really does encompass a lot of factors. And therefore, I, I concur completely with what you've said. It is completely prevalent. It actually transcends all geographical boundaries, all social stratas. It affects each and every one of us. And even if you're not directly affected, it can affect somebody quite close to you. And your example just brings that home. So it's, it's, it's a phenomenon, a scourge, actually, that affects all of us so that we need to, therefore, more, now more than ever, we need to be united against GBV. And, and you know what, it, 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 it's something that you would think would, would be an natural for us to, to not even want to tolerate something like this. Um, I have a, a friend of mine, he runs a, a, a website called The Good Things Guy. And uh, yeah. he published something the other day about a young boy um, and the, uh, the terror and things that this young kid had gone through in terms of bullying at school because of his sexual orientation. And, and just reading that and thinking about that poor child, it was also, it's absolutely heartbreaking. So, you know, yes, 16 days of activism is great. Um, and I'm sure you'll agree, but we should be doing 365 days of it. I completely agree. And um, that's why I was so heartened when I was reading last year, actually, that our government had said that it shouldn't just be 16 days. It needs to be 365 days. And that is true because it's not something that only happens during 16 days or at a particular time during the year. It's, it is a scourge that affects all of us every single day of the year. And therefore, there needs to be a constant awareness because your example that you cited now of this young kid, it's now going, it's intergenerational because it's now affected our generations and the generations that came before us. But we need to do something so that the little ones, the, the younger generations actually know what gender-based violence is, are aware of it, there isn't stigma, people can speak out so that we can try and break the cycle or at least put cracks in the cycle because it needs to end it can't continue absolutely and, and you know what we're talking about now and the the education side of it and bringing to light what gender-based violence is or, or abuse against women and children um it's so vitally important and and i'll relate a story of my own um you know when i was growing up um, my dad was an alcoholic um, and uh, used to drink and then used to get physically violent and, and beat me. Um, and I had a, my best friend at school. His dad was exactly the same. And we grew up for, for most of our, our younger years thinking that this is normal. This is what everybody does. I mean, you know, dad, dad drinks a bit, finds something that you've done that irritates him and beats you. 
and it was only in later years that we kind of both figured out that that wasn't okay and it wasn't normal. Now, if it happened to me, uh, I can only imagine how many other people it, it has happened to and must still be happening to. So, so things like what we're doing now is, is so, so important. And it leads me to another question for you, Natasha. Um, is there a place that this GBV and abuse is more prevalent? Can we, can we sort of put a sticker on it and say, well, it only happens in low income groups or it only happens in middle income groups? Where do we find it more prevalent? Actually, it's prevalent all around, David, because it is truly a scourge that affects everyone, regardless of your social strata. So we can't say that it just happens in lower income um, groups or middle income groups. Um, it affects all of us because you just don't know what's happening, for example, in a person's private space. Some, some people just may be better at hiding it and it may not come to the fore, but it completely happens throughout our country. And I dare say throughout the world, it's a global scourge. So one can't actually say that it happens um, particularly in a, in a certain sector of society. And that's what makes the scourge so horrific at that because it affects all of us and we need to then speak up about it. And I think what you mentioned about alcoholism and beating and nobody knows about it is just at the crux of this um, um, scourge because we have this culture of silence and this culture of stigma and we don't talk out about it. And a part of winning this battle is to actually say, if you have endured or are enjoying a, a form of gender-based violence, you're not to blame. You shouldn't be ashamed. You need to speak out about it. And that's why um, a podcast such as this or um, general advocacy and so forth is so important so that people are aware that they, they shouldn't feel shame, they shouldn't be stigma, and that we actually are all in this together. So we need to speak out about it. And I think you're right, and, and this crosses all sorts of, of socioeconomic boundaries. It's, it's there, as you say. Um, the sad part is, though, is that there is the stigma. This friend of mine, she was, she was saying to me on the phone this morning that when she went to the police station to report this, and, and you know, this is this very, because I saw some of the photos, it's very, very clear that she didn't trip and fall, Okay. Um, and the policeman at the particular police station she went to treated her like it was her fault, like she'd done something wrong. Um, and, and to me, this is like, wow, how can you possibly do that? Uh, but apparently it happens. Yes, unfortunately it does. And I think that's part of what my mission is about. Because if you educate more and there's more advocacy, then you'll know, obviously you instinctively know that hey, I'm not supposed to be treated in this way. and um, But if you have all this knowledge, you'll actually speak out about it and say, this is actually a form of secondary victimization. You have to adhere to the principle of Batapele and treat me with respect, for example, at the police station. I'm not happy with what you've treated, how you've treated me. I want to speak to somebody higher than you, for example. And we can only create such a culture of active citizenship if we break the stigma. So most definitely, unfortunately, it does happen that survivors 
are treated actually like the perpetrators. And therefore, um, like I mentioned previously, we need to ensure that advocacy goes far and touches as many people as possible so that people know that this is not how I'm supposed to be treated. Um, it actually brings home, I did a, a, a talk on Friday and um, we actually spoke about it um, it focused on the court procedures and what you should do if you feel that you've been victimized. And I think we need to add this a dimension such as this in our conversations so that all the different parties that are part of the GBV process um, are aware of their roles and responsibilities and that people, survivors that enter this process are aware that if they're not treated in a particular way, this these are the portals that they have to speak out about it. And that most importantly, they have a right to speak out about it. I, I, I so, would yeah. agree with you. I, I mean, you know, when, when, when I think about it, there's just there's so much work that lies ahead, but such vital and important work. Uh, you know, I was I was thinking about, you know, as you were talking, going back to my dad and my experience, you know, people would come to the house that would be friends of the family or, or even my friends. And they would go, sis, your dad is the most amazing guy, life and soul of the party, always very jovial. Um, meantime, back at the ranch, when everybody goes home, that's when the pulpit hit the fan. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I don't, th I don't believe by any stretch of the imagination that I'm an isolated or a special case. Uh, and, and that is what worries me. The other thing that concerns me, though, is, you know, that, that people feel the right to abuse other people. They feel that it's okay to abuse them in whatever way, shape or form. Um, surely there's, there's a psychological aspect to this. You know, um, to hurt people hurt people is, is what I believe. Uh, is is that is that a correct assumption? A lot of the time, violence um, and gender-based violence also is about power. And as you said, we don't teach, or we haven't. Um, hopefully, it's beginning to change. I don't think enough teach children particularly who grow up into adults on how to express themselves and how to deal with anger and how to handle complex situations in a positive way. And when you have this child that grows up into what I would call a broken adult and goes towards violence as the way to handle stress or to handle conflict, we get a situation like that. And then Add the mix, somebody that might feel insecure for whatever reason would then seek to dominate uh, a weaker party or, or a party that they perceive to be weaker. And let's be honest, we live in a very violent society and it's abnormal and we need to acknowledge that. And we need to say that, you know, let's use the portals available to us. Let's use, for example, life orientation and teach children how to manage conflict, how to talk about problems so that violence is not resorted to. Because if we don't, we're just going to perpetuate this vicious cycle um, so completely. And often one sees that people kind of have uh, like split personalities. I'm not a doctor, so I don't want to start diagnosing people. But on one hand, to the outside world, like your dad was, was the life and the soul and the kindest guy. But there's another side to it. And it might be that 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 was a way of asserting dominance your dad I don't want to speak but I'm just from examples that I've been um privy to didn't know how to handle conflict that was the way that you for example that um that old saying 
cowboys don't cry, boys don't cry. And we need to break that down so that we can start building a new generation of more empathetic, well-rounded humans. Because otherwise, the cycle of violence is just going to continue. Absolutely. Now, Natasha, this this particular podcast, The Education Show, um, it goes out to uh, educators, teachers, it goes out to people that are associated with the industry, parents, um, and even some of the, the children as well. What advice do you have to somebody who might be listening to this now? And, and how do we go about helping and assisting in curbing this gender-based violence? I think the first um, the first step is to speak about it to say, even if it's to fellow educators or associated organizations and to learners, to say, we acknowledge that there is gender-based violence, age-appropriate definitions are important, and then to tell people that, you know, there are organizations, for example, like ENS Africa and a host of others that are able to assist. And then if people come forward to be able to say, you know what, okay, you've identified that this is um, this is happening, for example, or you've noticed bruises on a child, or so forth, and say, let's report it. We don't we don't continue the the culture of silence. And if people seek help, you actually refer. Um, these individuals to organizations that are able to assist. For example, if there is anybody that's listening to the podcast and they are a survivor of gender-based violence um, or they know somebody who's a survivor, please send me an email and I will contact you. And if I'm not personally able to assist you, I will refer you to an organization that can assist you. If with your permission, David, may I, may I give my email address? Absolutely. Please do, Natasha. And thank you. Thank you for, for being prepared to, to do this for, for people. So let's go with the email address. Yes. No, thank you so much for that. So it's N-W-A-G-I-E-T at E-N-S-Africa.com. Um, I don't know if you want me to repeat it or you can say it um, during the podcast, but what I want to say is please don't hesitate, hesitate to pop me an email and I will definitely respond to you and we can take the conversation further. Even if you're an educator and you say, you know what, I want to chat to my learners or I want to chat to fellow educators about that. We can see uh, how we can tackle a situation like that. We can send you some of our pamphlets that we've created. We can do another podcast or we can do a, uh, a Microsoft Teams situation if you're not in the Western Cape where I'm based. It's our mission to break the silence and to become actively or continue to be actively involved in this fight against the scourge called gender-based violence. So please do message me, um, email me. I will get in touch with you. Fantastic stuff. And again, thank you, Natasha. The The email address, if you missed it the first time, is n-w-a-g-i-e-t at ensafrica.com. Um, reach out to Natasha. And and just, you know, as an aside, I, I certainly think, and I know uh, this particular podcast brought to you by zabuza.net, um, I, I think they'd love to be able to do some more podcasts along with you and uh, for us to chat some more about this, because I think this is a great platform to start getting that, that information out there and get the, you know, some, some education going. On that score, Natasha, um, 
things like the Constitution and our Bill of Rights, I firmly believe we've got possibly one of the most robust constitutions in the world. Um, but so many people don't know about it. Is, is that something that we should be learning about? And what does our Bill of Rights say? Yes, I completely agree, especially if you look at the beginning of the Constitution and the ethos around it, which starts with we the people. Now, to make the Constitution come alive and not just be this document, we need to actually put we the people into practice. And therefore, the Bill of Rights needs to be unpacked. We need to look at Section 28, for example, which talks about the rights of children. You need to talk about the right to dignity and all those other, the right to education, all those other amazing rights and see how they have practical implementation. Um, because then when we truly foster the culture based on human rights and everybody becomes aware of it, then I see, think that this will be a positive thing for our society because it, we will truly make the constitution come alive. And I concur with you completely that we do have a constitution with some of the most robust rights and it's amazing and I'm very proud of it, but I'll be even more proud of it when it becomes something that everybody knows. At ENS, we run this course called the Constitutional, um, and now we're calling it Access to Justice. We want to make it um, more practical, and we started rolling it out. And when I show some of the participants, when I interview them for the course, and a lot of um, the people that join our courses are activists in various communities and so forth, a lot of these individuals have never, ever seen the Constitution. And that, for me, is a tragedy. So, yes, we need to continue to have these discussions. We need to do it on all levels. And I mean, to, to learners, to educators, to interested individuals, so that the Constitution permeates the lives of everybody, because that's what it was intended for. I, I agree there. And, and, you know, I'm just thinking, and, and my brain is, is spinning here, because th this is such a big subject, and it is such a necessary subject for us, to, to actually talk about because, um, as I said, full disclosure earlier on, that, that we'd recorded an episode like this uh, last week. And whilst it was, it was very real to me and something that I, I feel very passionate about, it wasn't until it came crashing home to me today that I realized the true importance and true value of what people like yourselves do. My advice to people is don't wait for, for an awakening like that. Um, because it's it's going to, you know, the, you, you'd rather prevent it than, than have to come and do damage control. Uh, also, though, I think we need to spend a lot of time, this is a holistic process, because it's not just about threatening the abusers with the long arm of the law. It's about breaking the cycle. Um, do, do you agree with that, Natasha? I know you've mentioned it earlier. Yes, completely. Whenever you in this sort of field of law, it's not just pure legal. I, you need a very strong psychosocial approach as well because it affects people intrinsically in human, as humans. And the lawyers <laughs> are skilled in the law. And therefore, we also need psychologists, social workers, and educators, um, and also the voice of, of, of learners to come to the fore. Because like you rightfully said, David, we need to treat this holistically. And therefore, a very strong psychosocial component is needed and necessary. We can't 
continue this journey and this conversation without having that to be able to comprehensively and holistically tackle and start talking about gender-based violence. So it's important that when we continue, we, I'm sorry, David, that when we continue talking about this, and I hope that we do, we include this component. Absolutely. And, and the other thing that I want to say to, to anybody that's, that's listening at this time is, it, and, and you've said it, Natasha, but I cannot reiterate this enough. It's not your fault. So often that, that abuse and, and the mental aspect of it breaks you down to, to the point where you go, okay, yeah, obviously I deserve this. Obviously I have no worth. That is not correct. It is not your fault. You know, um, I used to get into trouble for the littlest things. Uh, I used to live my life in terror of doing something wrong. Um, I think those scars probably lasted a lot longer than the physical scars did, but it's not your fault. You need to reach out. You need to get into contact. And that's why we're chatting to Natasha today. And that's why she's, she's given out her email address and uh, make use of it. And if you are an educator and you suspect something happening in your classroom, Natasha, what's your advice there? If somebody if somebody sees something in the classroom and, and and they kind of go, yeah, I don't think everything's one hundred percent here. Um, do they do the ostrich impersonation and stick their head in the ground and hope it goes away, or do they have an obligation to do something? There's a legal obligation. You have to do something about it. So what I would suggest is you speak to the the principal or um, headmaster, headmistress. I don't know the names these days. I've been out of school for so long, I'm old. Um, and you need to report it. And then what I suggest is you also make um, use of the various district offices and say that the head, the principal needs to report it there. And also um, contact the local social worker if there is a social worker attached to the school. But most importantly, you need to report it because that would be a child in need of care and you as an educator have a duty to report it. Um, so that would be for that component. So yes, no ostrich in the sand approach, you need to report it. And then secondly, when you mentioned that it's not your fault, I completely concur. And I wanna go a step further. If you have been in a gender-based violence situation, let's look at domestic violence, which is a component of it, and you've had the courage, for example, as a survivor, and you've gone to court and you've gone and you've reported it, but you've not finished the process and you've done this a couple of times, nobody can tell you that you can't go back again if something happens. So firstly, it's never your fault. Secondly, you can report it and go through the process as many times as possible. And if you encounter an individual that says, come on, you've been doing this 10 million times, you're wasting our time. You're not wasting anyone's time. You have a right to report it again and to go through that process. And for whatever reason, if you feel that you're not strong enough to work the, walk the journey alone to its completion, please do reach out. There are numerous organizations that are there to assist you. So I just wanted to reiterate that because sometimes I've heard horrific stories where people have said, you know what, I've been to the court a few times. I've never actually finalized it for whatever reason. And I feel like I'm a burden and I'm always categorically, you're not a burden. You're really strong to have actually approached and started the process. And no matter how long it takes you, it takes you that long. 
and you need to then just do it in your time. And also then I can point them in the right direction with regards to various organizations that are there to assist as well. I think that's fantastic. And, and you know, when we talk holistically, we need to actually find out and, and make public uh, those kind of organizations so people at least have some form of reference of where to go to. I mean, I think this podcast in and of itself is a great starting point, uh, but we need more. Uh, and, and I'm certainly going to advocate that we, we do some more. Natasha, before we, we wrap up today, um, in terms of ENS Africa, what, what is their vision going forward? Uh, and in terms of the pro bono work that you do, are you going to be continuing this? Yes, most definitely we will be continuing um, our pro bono CSI project. It is um, a very important part of the firm. Um, it is something that we we hold very dear. So we will be continuing it and assisting vulnerable communities and individuals in these communities. And a core component of this pro bono CSI project is our focus on gender-based violence and youth empowerment and, uh, and various other um, components. Um, but particularly, I'm very passionate about gender-based violence and starting to eradicate it and destigmatize it. So in a nutshell, David, yes, our pro bono CSI project is continuing and we co continue to be committed to assisting vulnerable members of our society and facilitating and working towards access to justice. Wonderful so stuff. Yes, that is we're so, around. <laughs> so good to hear. So good to hear. Uh, and we've said it in this podcast already. This this discussion needs uh, needs to go further. We need to do some more talking about this. But also, I, I want to end off, and I'm sure Natasha will agree uh, with me on this one, to start to change and break the cycle and the stigma uh, and, and to really address gender-based violence we all have a responsibility, each and every one of us, to, to educate ourselves, to, to be more aware. You know, I often hear people, and I'm one of them, that go, you know what, we have the potential of such a beautiful country to live in, and, and we could live in harmony, and it can be a great place, the African dream. Uh, and yet, we don't actually get involved and do something. So uh, my advice, my suggestion, do more, learn more, take responsibility. Yes, and if you see something, don't, don't be that ostrich, speak up. Um, and if you, if you know a survivor of GBV, please reassure that person. And if you are a survivor of GBV, know that there's no stigma attached, that you're not to blame, that there is help out there. So yes, education, I think, is the baseline for this, for helping or assisting or starting rather to eradicate GBV. And it takes all of us because GBV affects all of us. Wonderful stuff. That wraps it up for this edition of The Education Show. My special guest there, Natasha Wachit. Natasha, thank you so much for taking the time out and having a chat to us. I do hope we can have more of these conversations going forward. Thank you so much, David, for affording us this opportunity. It's greatly appreciated. Fantastic. That was my special guest, Natasha Wachit from ENS Africa. Uh, you've got those email addresses. Make use of it. Get in contact with her. Uh, as I said, it wraps it up. So from me to each and every one of you, thank you for listening.
That was the education show. Simply learn. Join the conversation on zibuza.net. That's Z-I-B-U-Z-A dot net.